Uh, we are working our way through a 16-week series called The Whole Story. And if you don't have one of these little booklets, it's just like kind of an empty notebook for you to take notes in. Uh, there's a couple over there on the side table as well as on the book table. They're totally free. If you're even just visiting, we've got plenty. We want you to have them. So grab one. It'll help you keep track of where we're at. The whole idea with this 16 weeks is it's building a kind of an intro to biblical theology. This idea is what is the overarching message of the whole Bible? Not only what are the individual components, but how do they all fit together to make one overarching story? And what we're looking at today is in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. Now, before we actually get into Isaiah, I, I realized um, I was preparing for this, and it wasn't until a couple days into preparing for this that I realized that Isaiah has a special spot in my heart. Um, so I was baptized around 13 years old, a confession of faith. I chose to follow Jesus. And then when I got into high school, um, I, I kind of fell off that wagon, had some disillusionment, some frustration. When I got into college age, I kind of walked away from God completely, would have said, no, I am absolutely not a Christian. Agnostic, maybe. Christian, no. Um, and one of the things that I had a hard time with was the Old Testament. The Old Testament is messy. It's violent, it's brutal, it's gross. There's weird customs, weird language. A lot of the heroes of the faith turn out to be total weirdos, if not hypocrites. And we're supposed to admire these men and women. And, and so I had no framework for how to handle those things. Uh, now, the Old Testament for me, the facts of the Old Testament has not changed, but my understanding and ability to understand the Old Testament has changed largely because of the work of Isaiah. In college, I was far from the faith, had a professor that um, kind of realized some of my wandering, invited me just to ask some questions, and I met with him regularly. And in that journey, I decided to look at Christianity a second time and give it a second chance. And so I went into the Old Testament, again, assuming the Old Testament was flawed and messed up. And I went in assuming the Old Testament was not in alignment with the New Testament. Have you guys ever heard that question? Like, how do you reconcile the God of the New Testament and Jesus and loving and gentle versus the God of the Old Testament? That's like fire and brimstone. There's like, they're just two different books. How do you reconcile that? You guys have heard that, right? I went into the second look at Christianity, assuming that that was true. And as I read the book of Isaiah, I realized how incorrect I was. So we are going to be in Isaiah and I am excited. Part of the reason I'm excited is because Isaiah is full of um, compelling language. It's full of poetic language. It is brutally honest. Isaiah pulls no punches. Isaiah is honest. The book of Isaiah is full of inexplicable grace. And it is heart-wrenching. So if you read Isaiah thoughtfully, here are some things that will happen to you and that you will encounter. So if you read Isaiah thoughtfully and open-heartedly, Isaiah will make you hate sin you will find yourself agreeing with every ounce of judgment and wrath that God speaks of. You'll agree with him. And you will be cut to the bone at the same time. You will not walk away feeling superior. You will walk away humbled and contrite. And as you read Isaiah, you'll see over and over God's repeated pleas as he's begging Israel, Israel, turn from your sin. Stop it. Come home to me. Come home. You'll hear that over and over and over. 
And you will see God's grace and his patience repeatedly as his people come home and leave and come home and leave, or they just refuse to come home in, in general. And he promises grace and he promises rescue. And one more thing you'll see in Isaiah is you will see God's vision for how the world should be. You'll see God's vision for how the world should be and it will warm your heart and you will find yourself hungering and groaning, God, why can't it be like this? That is everything that is in Isaiah. And as, as you finish Isaiah, you will know without a shadow of a doubt that you need his rescue and you will want it. It won't just be like a guilty, okay, I'm really bad at God, I guess you gotta save me. It's like, I want, your vision is so good and so compelling and everything else is so just like inadequate. You will want his rescue. And the book of Isaiah will sound a whole lot like Jesus in the New Testament. So my hope as we get into Isaiah today is that we can just kind of like throw out this false assumption that the God of the New Testament, the God of the Old Testament, they're missing and they're obvious contradictions. Can we just throw that out? Uh, I hope by the end of today, you'll be convinced that Jesus in the New Testament and all of the Old Testament prophets are the exact same God with the exact same message and the exact same heart. They often have a different form of language, oftentimes a different purpose, but it's the exact same God and the exact same message. So here's our roadmap, what to expect for today. Um, we are skipping like nine books of the Bible from last week to this week. And so we're gonna do a real quick history of just what are we passing over? What are some of the historical points that are framing the writings of Isaiah? And then we're going to jump into a quick explanation of prophetic literature. Isaiah is the very first book of prophecy that we are reading in this setting. And so I want to give us some handholds. Um, and then the third thing is we're going to look at the message of Isaiah in this, in Isaiah 53, that there is a suffering servant that is foretold. So we're going to read large swaths of Isaiah today. So I hope you brought your Bibles or have your phones or the Bibles in front of you will be helpful. We're going to read a lot of scripture today. And then number four, we're just going to ask, is there evidence that there's alignment between the Old and New Testaments, that Jesus actually is this foretold servant. And then we're just gonna end on, what does this actually mean for you and I? Great, it's some good theology. What do I do with it, okay? Here we go. Uh, so quick history. So there are a couple books we're flying through. Uh, if you want to grab your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel. We're not gonna read anything, but there's kind of a fun physical experiment that I wanna do with you guys. We're gonna fly over a whole bunch of books. Here's everything you're missing from 1 Samuel right here. We're gonna go 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then Song of Solomon, and then finally landing in Isaiah. My whole point is we're missing out on this much of scripture. And we're hitting the high points. We got 16 weeks, right? Here's some of the historical things that occur in those several hundred pages right here. So we, First and Second Samuel ends the remainder of um, King David's life, and uh, it, we, it historically follows where his throne gets passed to his son Solomon. Um, Solomon is uh, Solomon the Wise, probably familiar with him. He's the one who rebuilds the temple in Jerusalem. Um, and then unfortunately, towards the end of Solomon's life, underneath his reign, both he and the whole country kind of start to lean towards idolatry and greed. It's 
under Solomon's reign that the whole country starts to do this tilt. And then unfortunately, Solomon's son, Jeroboam, dives headlong into idolatry and greed. And underneath his tyranny, the nation splits. Israel is the northern kingdom that his son Jeroboam leads. Uh, Judah becomes a southern kingdom. It's like the remnant under Rehoboam. And then under First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, we're following the histories of both of those nations under a series of kings. Some are good, some are mediocre, some are flat out wicked. And all those histories kind of follow that along. But the big point is those historical records of Israel and Judah are following the degeneration of faith. That's what it is. It's a degeneration of faith, leaning into idolatry and greed and injustice. And so this is not just like a small group of people. This is like nationwide, nationwide degeneration. And it's this situation that Isaiah is speaking into. He's writing a book of, of prophecy and correction to Judah, the king of Judah, and he's writing to that. Um, and Isaiah's writings are complex. It's, it's more than just that one moment of history, but that's really the, the context he's writing in is over several hundred years, the nation has been degenerating into idolatry and injustice, and Isaiah speaks. That's his context. So what's important to know is Isaiah is writing not to faithful followers of God. He's writing to a faithless nation. Now, we can't cover the entirety of Isaiah, absolutely, but we can understand like the general gist of what he's getting at, okay? And because this is our first prophetic book, we're gonna use it as a, a bit of a structure. So that way, as you're encountering other uh, prophetic books, you can see some parallels. So here's some quick handholds for prophetic literature as a whole. There's five big things I wanna get to, and then three challenges I wanna talk about. First is, these are consistent themes pretty much for all prophetic writing. And there's nuance and variation, but five big consistent themes for all prophetic writing. Number one, Prophets are saying that God is speaking through them. Now, that, that seems kind of obvious, right? But that's really important. This isn't just some person saying, hey, I really think what you're doing is bad. No, he's saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and you are off the rails. God says, he's asserting God's voice. And so what's important about this is they're not just cultural commentators. They're verbalizing God's perspective in a moment of history. They're not only cultural commentators, they're theological commentators. Second important point is that they are affirming, when they're speaking to Israel, they're affirming that God chose Israel for a special covenant relationship. They're not just talking to a random group of people, they're saying, Israel, God chose you. You have special responsibilities, special benefits, special relationship. And so when Israel is being obedient and faithful, the prophets are affirming them and congratulating them. But then when Israel is off the rails, they're calling out their injustice and their faithlessness. But importantly, they're reminding Israel about their relationship. They're saying, Israel, you're not just some random nation. You are God's chosen people. You're priests for the world. It's through you that God will bless the world. The third thing that prophets say and carry is that the majority of Israel is sinning against God. It's not just a small pocket of people. This is the majority of the nation is off the rails in idolatry, greed, injustice. What the prophets are essentially saying is you either gotta stop sinning or you're going to be destroyed. 
We can't not do anything about evil. Now, the Israelites in all these different moments are worshiping other gods. And importantly, they're refusing to repent. It's not just a bunch of like accidental slips often. Often it's people with hard hearts turned from God and the prophets are calling them home. Repent, turn, turn. The last thing, or excuse me, the fourth thing that the prophets do is they're warning Israel. They're saying judgment will be the tool that will eradicate your sin. Like I said, Israel, something has to be done about your sin. Either you've got to stop or God has to stop you. God can't let evil wander the world without consequence, especially within his chosen people. So you either come home or we're gonna remove your sin, which often means either some historical consequence or notice this, some sort of day of judgment. So often when the prophets write, they're writing in like two time frames. This is an example of it. Often in Isaiah and other prophetic books, there's historical consequences whether it's famine, plague, invading nations, or the prophets are writing about a form of eternal judgment, a far future day, the day of the Lord, where the Lord will come back and judge everyone righteously. And, but notice this, all warnings of judgment are a call back to relationship and faithfulness and flourishing. It is not only condemnation, it's calls back into something good. And then the last thing, uh, verse five, it looks like it might've got cut off a little bit there on the screen, but there's a promise of renewal. There's a promise of renewal that lies on the far side of judgment. Something has to be done about evil, but there will be renewal. What God's essentially saying through his prophets is your sin's not bad enough to keep my plan of redemption from happening. My plan of redemption is stronger than your sin and stop, like come home. It's both of those things. This um, future uh, message of renewal and restoration, it comes through a savior that will bring peace and righteousness. It's through a savior, some special person in history that the whole world will be changed and sin and death will be removed. These are pretty much consistent in most books of prophecy. And this is gonna be our framework for looking at Isaiah, okay? So um, as we keep going, uh, three more quick things that make books of prophecy confusing. And again, you're gonna see all this today. That's why I'm giving it to you. First thing that can make prophecy confusing is language and images. They use all sorts of poetic images. Uh, Oftentimes they're trying to describe spiritual realities that aren't based in tangible earthly images. And so part of the reason that languages and imagery is hard is because they could just be cultural. Isaiah was written just shy of 3,000 years ago in a different continent. They're probably going to use some different colloquialisms than we do. They're going to use some different images. Um, And so that can make it hard. But then the second thing that makes it hard is, like I said, prophets often are describing a spiritual reality. It's not grounded in our tangible physical world. And so they're, they'll say weird stuff like, and there was this thing and it had four wheels and the wheels within wheels and eyeballs on the wheels because they're, it, it's not grounded in our world. And so they're doing their absolute best to take a spiritual image and put it in terms that we can understand. And that gets really confusing. Second thing that makes them confusing is prophets have this thing where they are four or excuse me, they're telling forth 
meaning I tell forth the word of the Lord. I'm letting you know. And they are foretelling, meaning forecasting a future event. So you'll see this in Isaiah. He's telling forth God's will in this moment of history and simultaneously I'm broadcasting forward what will be and what can be. So they've often got these two timelines going at the same time. And then the third thing is pronouns. No, I'm not joking. <laughs> uh, Prophetic literature has weird use of pronouns. Um, just a couple things uh, that you'll see today. One is just unsignaled transitions, meaning you've got one person speaking, I, 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 and then all of a sudden someone else will come in and go, I, 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 I. But there's no signal. No one ever says, this person says, then this person says. And so you've just got to look at what are they saying and what types of things are they saying, and then you'll begin to pick out the characters. Um, another difference is just ancient versus modern uses of pronouns, especially in poetry. So a couple things uh, that you'll see is um, Isaiah specifically will address the whole nation as Jacob. You, Jacob. But he actually means y'all, nation of Israel. Okay? So there'll be some of that. Um, and then another thing that you'll see is in ancient writing, is they will use images to describe people. So again, in Isaiah, you'll see this language of Zion. She, Zion. She, singular. But it's actually like the special city that represents God's work in the world and his chosen people. And at one point, there's talking about like, the men of Israel will marry she, Zion. But Zion is actually like an image of God choosing people. And so there's just interesting prophetic language. Um, so what we're going to read right now, we're going to open up Isaiah, is often called the passage of the suffering servant. And it is clearly pointed at a messianic figure, one person. But here's where these pronouns and prophetic stuff gets complicated. Before this messianic figure gets acknowledged, God uses the word servant to talk about Israel God uses the word servant to talk about Cyrus, an evil king. And God uses this word servant to talk about then the Messiah. So it's these use of pronouns and languages that we have to keep a hold of. So, and if we're missing out on some of these basic handholds, we really miss out on all the beauty of Isaiah. That's why we're spending this extra bit of time on the front end. So the story so far out of this is that God created a kingdom and he is the king. And he made human beings to represent him in that kingdom. Adam and Eve rejected this call, which led to sin and death. But God promised to defeat the serpent through the seed of the woman, who's also the seed of Abraham. And through Abraham's family, specifically Judah's royal seed, David, the covenant blessings would come to the world. Because all people were guilty and they deserved death, the sacrifices of the Mosaic law revealed more clearly their need for a substitute a.k.a. the suffering servant. Now, if you're reading that paragraph and are going like, what? That's a lot. Yeah, we kind of took nine weeks to get here. So if you want to go backwards, check out our podcast uh, and you can fill in some gaps, okay? All right. Would you open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53, verse four. This is the crux point the crux verse for the story so far that we're building into. And then we're going to go from here and read some more context in Isaiah, okay? So this is Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 through 6. 
This is speaking of the servant of God. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement or the penalty that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Now all we like sheep, we've gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This was written 700 plus years before the man, Jesus Christ. This is our crux today. Now, neither the word servant nor suffering was in that little section of verses, but we're gonna come back to this and we're gonna widen our view, okay? Um, and so uh, what Isaiah is doing right here is he's foretelling a servant of God that will be wounded and crushed in our place. A servant that will suffer so we don't have to be destroyed. In the language of the Mosaic law, a substitute. That's what Isaiah is describing. So we need to understand that those two verses in the context of the whole flow of Isaiah, okay? So God doesn't just drop that into a vacuum. It's actually surrounded by other context. And remember, Isaiah's like many prophets, and there's five things that most prophets do. Number one, this is the same stuff we just looked at. What Isaiah's doing is he's saying, I'm speaking for God. Israel, listen, this servant is a message from God. Two, Israel, you are special to me. You're in a special covenant with me, therefore I will give my servant. Three, Isaiah's writing because the majority of Israel is against him and they're living outside of relationship with him. They have not repented yet. Number four, Isaiah is talking, saying there is evil, there is chastisement, penalty that needs to be paid because of what you've done. But verse, or number five, your sin is not bigger than my plan of redemption. I will send a servant. That's what Isaiah is saying. So smack in the middle of all of that, there has to be a suffering servant. There has to be. That's the way out. So would you take a tour with me of Isaiah? We're gonna begin with looking at the fact that God has chosen Israel. Not just making this up. This is a special relationship in the book of Isaiah confirmed. This is in Isaiah chapter 41, verse eight. Isaiah 41, verse eight through 10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, right? Use of pronouns, right? He's talking about the nation of Israel, using the word Jacob to talk about the whole nation. You, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners. I'm saying to you, you are my servant. I've chosen you. I've not cast you off. So fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is Isaiah's first use of the word servant in this context. He's saying, you, Israel, you're my servant, my chosen one. I will not abandon you. It's the first time Isaiah is using that word so specifically, servant. 
I will not cast you off. I've chosen you. So then what is Isaiah's spiritual need? What is going on if we're using this servant language? Um, To the right, go to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 18. This is a bit of a longer section, Isaiah 42, 18 through 43, verse 1. And you'll hear this is what Isaiah's current spiritual reality is. Excuse me, Israel's current spiritual reality. God speaks through Isaiah and says, Hear you deaf. Look, you blind that you may see. Who's blind but my servant? Who's as deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is as blind as my dedicated one or as blind as the servant of the Lord? Now he sees many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he doesn't hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes. They're hidden in prisons. They've become plundered with none to rescue. They're spoiled with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will attend and listen for the time to come? Now, who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we've sinned? In whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey? And so God poured on him, Israel, the heat of his anger and the might of battle, and it set him on fire all around, but Israel did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. God is critiquing his people. You're supposed to be my servants. You're supposed to be my messengers, but you're blind and you're deaf. I'm putting warning and consequence. Wasn't it I who sent this consequence to you? But you're not understanding. You're not listening to what's around you. You're not observing the world. You're not taking it to heart. What we're seeing is that Isaiah is saying, you need a better servant. You need a substitute. So we're actually going to go backwards a few verses to the beginning of chapter 42. 42 verse 1. Now you'll notice here the first complicated use of the word servant. And we know that there's different uses of the word servant here because the first thing we read was God saying, Israel, my servant, Jacob, my people. And then we fast forwarded and he's saying, you're not a good servant. You're a blind servant. You're deaf. And now, here in the middle, notice this. Behold, my servant whom I'm uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He won't cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Remember those ancient metaphors that are hard for us? He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens, who stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it. He who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to those who walk in it. He says this, I am the Lord and I have called you in righteousness and I will take you by the hand and I will keep you. 
I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Notice this, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison, those who sit in darkness. For I am the Lord, that is my name and my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So behold, the former things have come to pass and the new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you them. Notice this has to be two servants, two different uses here. Because in um, chapter 42, verse 18, it says, who is blind but my servant or deaf is my messengers to come? And he goes down, verse 22, this people is plundered and looted. They're trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. But in the beginning of 42, we see a different kind of servant. If we look at um, verse 41, excuse me, 42 verse one, behold, my servant whom I'm uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. And then fast forward to verse five and down. Excuse me, go to seven, chapter, or verse seven. I'll give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. God's saying, Israel, you're my servant here, blind, deaf in a dungeon. So I'm gonna send a new servant who actually opens the eyes of the blind and liberates the captive. Two different servants. We're gonna keep going through Isaiah, but I wanna put up just a reference on the screen. If there are other, there, so there's a bunch of other mixed uses of the word servant in the end of Isaiah. If you'd like to write this down and just look at them or at least have it as a note. So as you're reading Isaiah, you can reference this and kind of know which servant is being spoken about. You can write that down. We'll leave that on the screen for a little bit, but I'm gonna keep going, okay? So notice, again, there's two different uses of the word servant. And what God is saying is he will send a special servant, special singular servant for a special singular role. Now, what is, why does Israel need a better servant? Why is God sending a better servant? We're gonna move on to Isaiah 58 to look at their guilt as God is describing it to them, okay? So would you turn to Isaiah 58 verse one? And we're gonna, again, gonna read a pretty large section here. Isaiah 58 verse one. And we're gonna go all the way to 59, verse three. Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression. Declare to the house of Jacob their sins. Now, as I keep reading here, you'll notice these first couple paragraphs, God's speaking with rhetorical questions, okay? It's gonna sound a little confusing, but notice the rhetorical questions. They seek me daily and they delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness. As if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. They say, why have we fasted and you see it not, God? Why have we humbled ourselves and yet you take no knowledge of it? God responds, behold, in the day of your fasting, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all of your workers. 
Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day, it will not make your voice be heard on high. Is this such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down your head like a reed and spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? What he's, he's talking about is religious hypocrisy. You put on sackcloth and ashes and you pretend to be really humble and the whole time you're just oppressing the people around you. You, you say you delight in me, but I don't see any of that in your heart or your actions. Now God continues, verse six. Is not this the fast that I choose? I want you to loose the bonds of wickedness to undo the straps of the yoke. Let the oppressed go free. I wanna break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, cover him. Don't hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, take away the pointing finger, speaking of wickedness, but if you pour yourself out for the hungry, satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire, even in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins will be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you should be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. But, excuse me, not but, <laughs> if you turn your... If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and if you call Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. For the Lord, mouth of the Lord has spoken. Continuing, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. Oof. I know that's a lot, and a lot of it probably was too quick, but oof. You say you delight in me, you say you humble yourself to me. It's not what I want. I want you to set the slaves free. I want you to serve the poor in your midst. What? You don't delight in me at all. Follow me and then I'll come. Do what I ask, here I am. But your hands are covered in guilt, your fingers with blood and iniquity. You're speaking lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. That's why I'm far from you. My hands aren't short, my ears aren't deaf. Your sins have separated you from the Lord your God. Eight. 
And this is the reality, not only of the nation of Israel, but of the world. Like, does this not even punch you and I in the gut? You say you delight in me. I'm not deaf. Which is why we're going to transition to the fuller context of the suffering servant. Israel's not just lottie dying around. They are in true guilt, true iniquity. Blood is on their hands. And we resonate with that. Which brings us to why Israel needed God to send a better, more perfect servant. So would you go back to Isaiah 53, or excuse me, 52. We're going to begin in Isaiah 52, verse 13. And this is going to be another long one. Bear with me. Um, we're going to go through all of 53. God says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, and he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And so shall he sprinkle or startle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see, meaning prophecy, and that which they've not heard they understand. Who has believed what he's heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, the servant, grew up before him like a young plant and a root out of dry ground. Meaning he grew up even in parched places that were harsh against him. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He was humble and quiet. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement or the penalty that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. Now all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He, the servant, was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, though he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. When his, the servant's soul, makes an offering for guilt, then he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, for out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous." He shall bear their iniquities. 
And therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he's poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. There's a couple of just key things towards the end that I just wanna clarify really quickly. If you'd go to the next slide, this is the same ending verses, but I just wanna bring some clarity because they're a bit confusing. You'll notice it says, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. What he's saying is that uh, verse six, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but because of this servant, we will now be children. We will become offspring because of what he's doing. The next one, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. In his anguish, he will look outward and be satisfied. Hebrews 12 verse one says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Out of the anguish of his soul, he was satisfied. This is pointing forward to in his punishment, he's happy. He's suffering for you and he's glad. He's eager to do this. And then the next one, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This is saying that his portion that he earned, he will share with many. So notice the sacrifice here. This is the big key and kind of where we're really honing in. Israel up until this point has been using a system of animal sacrifice, right? Animal death for human life. And they've got to do that over and over and over and over and over and over. And this is a new reality, human life for human life. This is a brand new reality for the people of Israel. They've never once sacrificed humans. There was the section of Abraham and Isaac and that was confusing for them, but they've never sacrificed humans. This is different. There is a special Messiah, a special servant who will have a special role in God's redemptive plan. So I want to point us back to the story so far, and I'm not going to reread this paragraph, but some things I just want to point us at. If you'd go to the next slide, please. Notice in the middle that there's sin and death, but God promised to defeat the serpent through the seed, the seed of the woman seed of Abraham, the seed of Judah, the seed of David. This will be a king. The seed will be a king and he will defeat sin and death. And so it is the seed, he is the king, and he is at the bottom our substitute. The Mosaic law revealed we need a substitute and it will be, Isaiah is telling us, a suffering servant king. The seed of the woman will be a king who will suffer as a servant in your place. That's what Isaiah is getting at. And this is, this is an atomic bomb in the passing of biblical theology. This is huge. This is rewriting everything here. Up until now, much of it has been questioned. Who's it going to be? How are you going to do it? What's it going to be? And then God says, bam. You've wandered like sheep, but my servant will take your guilt and make you children. This is so clarifying in the passage of scripture. And I wanna give just the last few minutes together today, clear evidence 
that Jesus is this king, that there's alignment between the New Testament and the Old Testament. These aren't mismatched messages. They are one message. So we're going to continue quickly through scripture. I hope that's okay. And then we'll end here in just a few minutes. Isaiah 53 verse 11, we just read this. By his knowledge or by his experience of suffering shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Notice his role of servant. My righteous one, my servant, shall bear their iniquities. This is in the life of Jesus, Mark chapter 10. Jesus called to them and said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to be the servant, to give his life as a ransom for many. Continue with me, Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Fast forward to the end of the life of Jesus in Matthew 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and he blessed it. He broke it. He gave it to the disciples and he said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given it to them, he gave thanks and he said, drink of it all of you, this is my blood of the covenant. And it's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Last one, Isaiah 53, three and 10. He, the servant was despised. He was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring or his children. John chapter one, introducing the person of Jesus says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world. The world was made through him and yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He was despised and rejected by men. He was in the world, he made the world, and yet he came to his own and his people didn't even receive him. They rejected him. Now there's more parallels, and I'll put these on the screen if you wanna follow up on this, but the next like most beautiful one is if you look at uh, Luke chapter 20 through, 22 through the end of Luke, it's the crucifixion narrative. It lines up beautifully. But these are essentially parallels. If you wanna look at Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 53, Isaiah 42 plus Mark and Matthew, Isaiah 49 and John 1, all of those go hand in hand if you'd like to study more this week. My main point is there is clear evidence between the alignment of the New Testament Jesus and God and the Old Testament God, even in his judgment. They are the same message from the same God throughout. We have no need to look at these as two separate conflicting revelations. 
Now, here's where we're going to end, that there's good news. So far, we've been looking at the suffering servant as just kind of an idea. But think about this. Where Isaiah and the people of Israel had to look forward to a servant, wonder who that might be. Like we look backwards and we say, it's been accomplished. What this means is you, you, O Israel, your hands are guilty with blood, your fingers with iniquities. And he has borne your griefs. He's suffered the chastisement that brought you peace. By his wounds, you are healed. That's good news. Your hands are no longer bloody with iniquity. Your tongue is no longer full of wickedness. You are cleansed because the servant has come and he has forgiven you if you are following him. And if you're not following him, Easter's come up. We'd love to baptize you. There's one last scripture I want to point us to. And this is our security. The suffering servant, what he's done for us, it's not a maybe. It's not a, gosh, I hope it was good enough. Gosh, I hope he forgives me. Gosh, I hope his righteousness outweighs my injustice. It is a sealed fact. If you have put your hope and trust in the person of Jesus, he has borne your iniquities, period. Everything you've done in your past, everything you're doing right now, everything you will do in your future, washed for. Romans 8 tells us, go backwards if you won't mind. Who shall bring any charge or accusation against God's elect? It's God who justifies, so who is there to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but more than that, he was raised. We're gonna talk about this tomorrow, next week. He was raised, he's at the right hand of God. It's indeed him who's interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No. Shall distress? No. Shall persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? Poverty? No. Danger? No. Sword? No. No, in all of these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come in the future, nor powers, meaning spiritual forces, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate you, Israel, from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Full stop. This is the good news we leave here today with. Would you pray with me? Father, your word is good. You carry us. Thank you for um, your scriptures that we pour over and come back to when our minds wander, when our will wanders, when our own accusations come at us, when people condemn us. Lord, you hold us fast. You have done a mighty work. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.